listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. excited about uh, Vacation Bible School and a big thanks to everybody who got involved. Do you, do you realize that uh, a week from today, next Sunday, is July 1st? That means that 2018 is halfway gone. Where did it go, right? But next Sunday, we start a series still in James, but he shifts his focus and uh, he begins to talk about what we say. So I'll start and you finish this. You ready? Um, Sticks and stones may break my bones. So it's a children's rhyme that we taught children in order to ignore harsh words, not retaliate. But the truth of the matter is, you and I know that words do hurt. And so that's the title of the series that starts next Sunday and goes all the way through July. Words hurt. The Bible has a lot to say about how we talk to and about people. And I believe this series is a series that could really help you in your relationships with uh, family members, with co-workers, with friends, um, in your relationship with God. God has a lot to say about how we talk. And so, I know it's July, some of you have vacations planned, and I'm glad you get to go on vacation. But otherwise, make sure that you're here every Sunday you can be in July. Don't let July slip away from you, okay? We'll be in our regular schedule a 9 o'clock service, and an 11.15 service. And so be here every Sunday that you can as we talk about the fact that words hurt. Okay? So we're in the last Sunday of James' focus on the Word of God. And, and he challenges us, don't just listen. Once you become convinced of what the Word, the will of God is for your life, don't just listen to it, but actually do what it says. So we have an idiom in the English language, and, and here it is. Actions speak louder than words. Now, I have both said this to people, and I've had this said to me many times over the years. And, and what the idiom simply means is that what we do is way more telling than what we say. So words can be cheap. Actions are not. And so James has been moving us all of this time. It's not just about what you hear or what you say, but it's about what you do. So with that in mind, let me just have a little conversation with you. And we'll pretend that you're answering my questions, okay? I'll, I'll help suppose some of your answers. But what if I ask you, are you a person of faith? So you might say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Rick, when you say, am I a person of faith? I believe in God. I think that's faith. I believe that Jesus is God's only Son. I think that's faith. I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. I think that's faith. 
I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is truth. I believe it's God's Word. I think that's faith. And so I would agree with you. That's faith, okay? You believe. You're a person of faith. Let me ask you a second question. How do your beliefs influence the way that you live out your daily life? And so I'm going to suppose that there's many of you who would say, Wow, how does what I believe influence the way I live my daily life? I mean, it has all influence on my daily life. I mean, I live my life based on what I believe. There might be someone saying, Well, Rick, I do believe that God is the only true God. I do believe that Jesus is His Son. I do believe that the Bible is God's Word and its truth. But... That doesn't really influence the way that I live my life. So, for example, it doesn't affect the way that I act. It really doesn't affect the way that I spend my time or my money. It doesn't really affect the way that I talk to or about people. It doesn't really affect the way that I treat people. It doesn't really affect my moral choices. In, in other words, there's, there's sin in my life. And I probably break many of the Ten Commandments on a regular basis. But if you're asking me, do I believe in God? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe the Bible is true? I believe all of that is true. Now here's what James is doing, okay? He, he takes us to this place that's new in the conversation. And in this new place, here is his challenge. He seems to imply that there may be different levels of faith. There are different kinds of faith. And in one sense, he talks about faith as an intellectual ascent. I believe in God. I mean, I just, I just think that somebody created all of this and set it all in motion. I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible is God's Word and it's truth. But it doesn't really affect the way that I live my life. And then James enters this conversation about this other level or kind or degree of faith. And he talks about a person who enters into a relationship with God. A friendship with God. And that friendship results in an obedient lifestyle. It's the person who says, my faith is such a deeply held conviction that it affects the very core of my being. And my faith and my actions have become inseparable. And so my faith is reflected in the way that I live my everyday life. And this is the question that James pushes you toward. So what is saving faith? And what is faith that actually saves a person in the end? So let's go to James, okay, chapter 2, and we'll begin reading with verse 14 and read through verse 26, James chapter 2. So I'm just going to tell you that these are strong words. If there's a seatbelt on your chair, you might want to go ahead and buckle it now, because you're going to feel like you've been taken for a little bit of a ride when this is over, okay? James says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters? Now, I think you've got to hear his heart, brothers and sisters. He's not red in the face. He's not pointing a finger. He's not mad at anybody. 
I think you hear his heart of compassion. Dear brothers and sisters, hey friends, can we talk about something? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose, and this is the first of three arguments, okay? Suppose you see a brother or sister. Now, he's talking about someone probably in the community of faith. I think when we think about people who are asking for money for food or clothes, we tend to think about maybe going downtown in Oklahoma City and seeing a person on the street who is homeless. That's probably not the person he's referring to here. He's talking about somebody in the community of faith. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. And you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and well fed. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now here's the second argument. He builds a straw man. An antagonist who argues with him. Now, someone may argue, so nobody's really arguing, but let's suppose somebody does. And the straw man says, well, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? And then James says, I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. He's quoting the Shema. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. You understand, he's saying that a person who recognizes God but does not live an obedient life to God, well, that's a relationship anybody can have. Even demons can have that kind of a relationship with God. So how foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? He says that over and over again in these words. Now, here's the third argument, okay? Don't you remember, I'll I'll talk to you from human experience. I'll give you examples. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be righteous with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. You might want to underline it or remember it or write it down. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. What is this business of faith and actions working together? His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the Scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So now we're talking about this relationship with God or this friendship with God that results in our actions. And so you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not not by faith alone. And then here's another example. Rahab, the prostitute. She's another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions. She came to this place where she believed she understood what the will and word of God was. And she did it. So when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. The Word of God for the people of God. The question we're 
asking this morning is, what is the relationship between what I believe and how I live my life? And this word faith is pistis. It means piety, or it could mean true religion, or it could mean what a person believes. So, so what I have given my whole life to, what I trust my whole life with, my faith, what is the relationship between that and how I live out everyday life? Now, there's a creed that is very dear to the heart of a Christian, and it's the Apostles' Creed, and it's been around for a long time. And what I want us to do is read it together with enthusiasm. Are you ready? Here we go. In unison, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Do you believe this? Now, I think I heard somebody say something. Do you believe this? So what bearing does that have on the way that you live your everyday walking around, eating, drinking, sleeping life? What bearing does that have on the way that you live your life. So, <clears throat> James, I feel like, has, has made a bit of a shift. And, and, and we're in this idea, in this conversation about, so once you become convinced of what God's Word is, what His will is, what His desires are for your life, and remember when we talk about James and the Word of God, he didn't have a book. He wasn't thinking about a book necessarily. He was thinking about the Scriptures, but he was thinking about all the ways that God has revealed His Word, His will, His desires for you. So when you become convinced of God's will for you, don't just listen, don't just be aware, but actually embrace that as a way of life. And so that's been the focus. It's been about do. And, and now it seems like he just kind of slides into this other conversation and it's more about be. Who are you? Because if this is who you are, if this is really who you are, if you really have been raised to this new life in Christ, if you really are now a follower of Jesus, if you really have been born again, then your life, James is saying, is probably going to look more like this. Now, I can't hardly believe I'm going to put these words up, but I'm going to put these words up uh, because as simple as they are, I think they can be helpful. We can only be who we are. This is about identity. This is about the core of your being, the core of my being. 
I can't be somebody else. And if I really have not been raised to this new life, if I really have not entered into this friendship relationship with God that results in obedience, that affects the very core of my being, where faith and actions cannot be separated, where my faith is reflected in the way I live, if I have not entered into that kind of relationship with God, if that's not who I am, then that's not who I can be. We can only be who we are. And I think that Paul just, I mean James rather, just kind of slides into this conversation of identity. If this is who you are, then your life is probably going to look more like this. Because you can only be who you are. And so he doesn't use these words, but, but this alleged faith. This alleged faith that does not result... In obedience to Jesus, James says it's, it's worthless. It's of no value to you. It's of no benefit to you. Well, I believe in God. I believe Jesus is His Son. And I believe the Bible is the truth. But it has no bearing on the way I live my life. James says it's just useless to you. In fact, three times he says that faith is dead. That faith is useless. That faith is of no value. And I want to respond and say, well, for heaven's sakes, James, they believe in God. Isn't that worth something? They're not atheists. And he says, if you don't move further than that, no, it's no value to you. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the arguments, okay? A few years ago, I was on a plane, and, uh, and I was seated in an aisle seat, and then, uh, then there was a seat right here beside me that was vacant, and then there was a seat by the window. And there was a lady sitting in that seat who was very kind and a few years probably older than me, not a lot, um, and, and she was trying to engage in a bit of conversation, and I was glad to do it. And when she learned that I was a pastor, uh, the conversation really turned up. And she told me that she was a, um, a member of a church in Tip City, Ohio, that I had actually visited before, called Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church. And, and she began to share with me that, that their lives are very different now, that they're a part of this church. She said, we have always gone to church. My husband and I both were raised in Christian homes. But when we moved to Tip City, someone invited us to Ginghamsburg. And she said, we bought in completely. We bought in completely to living a very simple life and giving away as much of our income as we could possibly give. She said, it's the culture of our church. Most of us live in older, smaller homes. And most of us drive older cars. And most of us live very simple lifestyles with the goal of year after year being able to increase the amount of money that we give away to our neighbors because we are convinced that we must meet the spiritual and emotional needs of our neighbors, but we also must meet the physical needs of our neighbors. And she began to talk to me about the millions of dollars 
that the church was presently given away in humanitarian projects in places like the Sudan. She said, we're convinced this is God's will for our lives as followers of Jesus. I remember being pretty shaken by that conversation. There's this church of about 4,000 people and and people keep coming and people keep buying into this idea that Jesus really wants His people to not only meet the spiritual needs of their neighbors but to meet the physical needs of their neighbors. And so they live very counterculturally. They go completely against the grain living in older, smaller houses and driving older cars with the goal of giving as much money away as I can possibly give away. It's overwhelming, isn't it? And it's, and it's where James goes. It's his first argument. Suppose a brother or sister, and that's probably somebody in the community of faith that he's talking to, comes to you, and, and, and they are in need of clothing and food. They're, they're naked and they're without food, you know. And you and I would say, really? I mean, how's a person get to that degree? I mean, this is urgent, right? This is severe. I mean, this is like survival becomes an issue at this point. But you've got to remember, we talked last week, that this is a society where 90% of the people are very, very, very poor and 10% of the people are very, very, very rich. And there is no climbing the ladder of success. If you're poor, you don't dream of one day climbing out of this hole and making it big. There's no rags-to-riches story in this society. If you're poor, your focus is not on climbing the ladder of success. Your focus is on surviving. And it makes this scenario even more believable. So can you imagine if somebody came to one of us today and we're all here together at the church and somebody walks up to you and says, you know, we have nothing to eat at our house. I have three kids. We've fallen hard times. And if you just laid both your hands on their shoulders and you looked them in the eye and you said, Hey, looky here. Cheer up. Let me see a grin on that face. God's got this. Now get on out of here. Be warm and well fed. I mean, we would all look at you and say, What did you just do? What, what, what good is that? I mean, what is that going to profit this person? That's not going to profit this person, James says, any more than your faith without actions is going to profit you on the day you stand before God. I'm going to say it again. That is not going to profit that person any more than your faith without actions is going to profit you on the day that you stand before God. James talks about the poor. He's talking about the poor now, and he's going to talk about the poor again. And the way that the rich disregard the poor... And it's consistent with what we read in the Old Testament. And it's consistent with Jesus, who when He talked about eternal life and eternal punishment, He talked about it in relation to feeding the hungry and providing shelter in Matthew 25 and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and the imprisoned. And I don't know how we got to where we are today, but somehow we got to a point that we have reduced following Jesus to asking for forgiveness and going to church and dropping a few bucks in the offering and listening to some Christian music and hanging out 
with some Christian friends and that should be enough, right? There's not anything else that I need to do, correct? I don't know how we got here, but somehow we got here. And that is what James is trying to confront. I told you these are hard words, right? I told you this is strong stuff. You should have put your seatbelt on. Second argument. Got a phone call the other day from a friend, an old friend, whose name is Jack. He lives in Columbia, Tennessee. I haven't, haven't been to Columbia, Tennessee except once or twice, and that wasn't a church service for 16 years. That's where we pastored at one point. And Jack is in his 80s, and he said, Rick, and I haven't been able to keep in touch with everybody in that church like I have Jack, but we had this event that brought us together every year, and that really helped. Silb's about to go. His wife's name is Sylvia. He calls her Silb. She's about to, about to die. Pastor's on sabbatical. Any way you could come back and do her funeral? And I said, you know, Jack, I might, I might could. Let's, let's see. And so I was able to go back. It was one of those fly out late one night and fly back in late the next night and just go there, do the funeral, come home. It got crazy, though. Some kind of mechanical failure. Spent the night in Dallas and got up really early the next morning. Got to Nashville, drove an hour to Columbia, got there just in time for the funeral, and then gone again. It, it, was, it was awesome, though, to celebrate Sylvia's life, and it was awesome to see people I hadn't seen in 16 years. And uh, one lady came up and said, You remember me? And I said, of course I remember you. And she said, what's my name? And I said, come on now, you know your name. One guy came up, his name's Johnny. I said, Johnny, I remember the day you gave your heart to Jesus. I got to hug another guy named Dennis who said, Pastor Rick, you remember the day that I gave my heart to the Lord? You remember the day I became a Christian? I said, I do, Dennis. I'll probably never forget it. A guy named Ed walked up and put his arms around me, and we talked about the day that Ed came to Jesus. And here are these guys living these lives that are drastically different than the lives they had previously lived. They entered into this relationship with Jesus, this, this friendship, this relationship that resulted in obedience, that affected the very core of their being, where actions and faith were inseparable. And it was reflected in the way they just lived their daily lives, and they're still living those daily lives that are very different. It was awesome. It was awesome to get to be with them and to hug them and to remember their story and the way their lives had changed. And that's Paul's second argument. He builds the straw man, the antagonist. And the antagonist says, now someone may argue, well, some people have faith, others have good deeds. Paul says, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? It is possible for a person who does not have faith to do a good deed, to help someone who is poor. Or to make a moral choice to do the right thing when it's right or wrong. But James is saying it's not possible 
For a person who has entered into this obedient relationship with Jesus, who has faith to not do good deeds, that is not possible. And then he quotes the Shema. James probably said the Shema all of his life. You believe there is one God. You remember the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. You believe there is one God. Even the demons believe this. And so recognizing God and even being aware of His power but not living a life in obedience to Him, that's a relationship that anybody can have. Even the demons have that kind of relationship with God. So, uh, I think this is the, the time where I've got in my notes you should sit down. He gives a couple of examples, one about Abraham, one about Rahab, and all he's trying to say is just that their, their actions was proof of their faith. I'll, I'll give you the words first. So you see we're shown to be right with God. He doesn't say we're saved by our works. He says we are shown to be right with God. How do you know you're saved by grace? Well, you're shown to be right with God by what you do, not by faith alone. so I think this is where we ought to have the talk. Some of you might be saying, wait, I, I've got this verse in Ephesians that, that's quoted often. By you, Rick, that says we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Nobody can boast. And I think that's in keeping with James' words. He doesn't say you're saved by works. He says... Our faith is shown by our works. And when I enter into this relationship with Jesus, where I am saved by grace, then, here's all he's saying. Salvation by faith results in holy living. And you can only be who you are. You can't be somebody else. If you really have been raised to this new life, then your life is probably going to look more like this. So I came today a little concerned, concerned that, um, that some people in the room who are saved may say, I don't know if I'm saved. That was one of the concerns I walked in the door with. That maybe I would, I, would, I would share this stuff and somebody who is saved would say, Wow, now I don't think I know for sure. And you would maybe do some comparing. I, I mean, there's, I mean, there's good, good stuff in my life, but not as good as that guy and not as good as her for sure. And I don't want to talk you out of your salvation. At the same time, I don't want to talk you into salvation. And the Lord just kind of gave me some peace and said, My word speaks. And people in the room know 
You, you don't have to judge them. You don't have to stand back at the back door and say, I think you're saved. I'm not sure you are. I think you're in, ma'am. Your husband is questionable. You know. I don't have to do that. I can't do that. I don't know. I don't know anybody's heart. All I know is my heart. Right? But if something is terribly broken in your life and you're saying, Rick, I say I believe these things, but I live this way, and it tells me something's wrong. So his, his last sentence interests me. It's like he's just going to try to drive it home one more time, right? Anybody having a birthday today? Anybody in the room? Happy birthday to you. Anybody? Hand way up in the air. I'm trying to scan the crowd. Anybody? Nobody? Keith Newman, it's your birthday today. Is that right? How old are you, Keith? <laughs> Dr. Keith Newman has a birthday today. Anybody else? Is he the only one? No, I got somebody, somebody waving. Oh, there we go. Happy birthday to you. People just keep having birthdays. Have you noticed that? I wonder how many people have had a lot of birthdays. Like, uh, how many people are already 95 years old, but not yet 100? Anybody 95 in the room? I see a hand right there. Good morning. Do I see another? Somebody's pointing. Wow. Huh? Eva May. Are there others? Got one back here. Waving a cane at me. Isn't that awesome? Do you know three years ago I had a lady sitting right here, right here on the front row. Her name, Edna Timms, and, and, and it was her 100th birthday. She turned 100 that day. And, and this Thursday, Miss Edna Timms is going to turn 103. So we're, I, I see your family right over here. Would you stand up, Miss Edna? Would you be okay to stand? You guys want to celebrate 103 Thursday? <laughs> I just don't know how you can't celebrate that. I, I love telling people about Edna Timms. Anytime I go somewhere, I get in conversations. You've been in more of my sermons, Miss Edna, than anybody, you know? <laughs> My favorite is that she bought a new mattress a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and she bought a mattress with a 10-year warranty. <laughs> that is optimism, isn't it? So you just keep having birthdays. And as long as you're having birthdays, you're alive. Most of us are going to leave this world one day, unless you have the blessing like Miss Edna, and then you just keep living and living and living. How do you know... That you're not alive anymore. Paul says, well, you have, I mean, James says, well, you have no breath. And, and in fact, he says, it's the same ar ar argument for faith. When, when you realize that there is no, there are no actions, there are no good deeds, there are no works, that's how you know your faith is dead. And, and here's his language. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Dead. Useless. No value. Some, somebody's got to be saying, is there any hope in this sermon? 
Can you say one positive thing before you're done? Yes, there, there, there is hope. There is hope in that you really can be raised to this new life. And that you really can be transformed. And that you really can enter into this relationship, friendship with God that results in an obedient lifestyle that affects the very core of your being where faith and actions are inseparable and it's reflected in the way you live your everyday life. There is a new life in Jesus to be lived. And so I, I just think that somehow... Oh. I think that somehow, you know, we gotta, we got to deal with the what do I do. And I wish I could tell you, you just make a decision... But the truth is, salvation is all God. He makes you hungry. He draws your heart. He woos you. He courts you. (laughs) He loves on you. And Jesus said, it's kind of like this. It's like a person who, who finds a field one day. And it means so much to him that he goes and sells everything he has just to have it. I want this worse than I want anything in the world. I want this life, Rick, you're talking about. Now what I love is that God's talking now. God's been talking for a long time. God's been drawing, loving. And I just got to wonder if today may be the day that you say, I want this life more than I want anything else. I will give up everything to have this life. So why don't you stand with me, will you? And if you want this life, there's going to be pastors here to pray with you. One over here, there'll be one over here. Just come or bring a friend to pray with you or a family member to pray with you. Bring them with you, that's okay. Pastor Rick, I believed in God a long time. I believe in Jesus. I believe the Word of God. But I want that life that you're telling me about desperately. So today it's just a matter of coming and accepting, receiving the gift, the grace, the life that Jesus offers. It's a matter of being born again. It's this whole new life. And I want you to have it desperately. If you want to come and pray about other things this morning, you are welcome to. If you want to come and pray about a sickness you're going through, if you want to be anointed, a pastor will anoint you. would be glad to do that. If you want to pray for a family member, if you know someone who needs this life, come and pray for them. If you want to pray about a hard time, you can pray about that. If you want to come and just give God thanks, come. And give God thanks. But um, I think it's crucial this morning that we pause before we go and we pray and we sing. So let's sing. And as we do, if you want to come, feel free to come. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.